Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. I'm actually just tying this sermon because I want it in the John series. I got Romans 19 verse, pardon me, John 19 verse 42 there, which is the last verse of chapter 19. And and it simply says this, uh, therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And and so this is the burial. We have Joseph of Arimathea and um, Nicodemus placing the body of Jesus Uh, in uh, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. They wrapped his body and they put, remember how much uh, myrrh and aloes, anybody? 100 pounds is what my Bible says. Uh, I checked on it. It's somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds, uh, depending on how you take the words. Uh, So it was, why would they use so much? That's how you buried royalty. So it was, they were, uh, Nicodemus was, this was his, his worship, man. He was worshiping him. He, he went and got enough, enough of this myrrh and aloes uh, to, to, to prepare the body of a, of a king. What they would do is they would wrap all of that and they would put them in that. And then they would put them inside a, a, a tomb and lay that body on a stone shelf uh, of some kind. I showed you the picture where I think this took place. I, 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 I really, I, I have very little doubt in my mind. But I showed you the place of the skull. I showed you, if you recall, the garden that it was just, even back in 1900, there it was over uh, to, the, uh, to the left side. Uh, I then showed you the picture of the tomb that's there in that garden. Um, that is an ancient garden. Uh, that cistern uh, is one of the largest cisterns they found, the water cistern un- underneath this thing. It was an ancient garden. There's a wine press in this thing. It goes way back. Um, so it was there. And uh, it says that Joseph had carved out a new tomb for his, himself, which had never been used. And um, what, the, what he would do is they would take that body, wrap it up, put it on, that, on a stone shelf, and roll the, the stone over the door. Well, the, the, the purpose of it then is you would leave that body for about a year. The body would stay in there for about a year drying. And so at the end of, end of the year or so, you would, you would open the tomb back up. You would come to this body. You would unwrap this thing, and the body would be, the, the flesh and all of that stuff would be like dust, and there would be just the bones. And they would then take the bones and they would put them in what we call an ossuary. It's a, it's a stone box uh, carved out of stone, uh, which is uh, as long as the, the, is the femur, the longest bone here in the, the human body. It's just long enough for the, for the femur. And then they pile all of the bones into this box. They put a lid on this thing, a stone lid on this. And then they put that box full of bones in what, a niche, a little carved out area in the walls. And so you just, you reuse a tomb. That's why even the phrase is said, in which nobody had ever been laid. Uh, it hadn't been used yet. But it would be used, and then there'd be these bones in, in the niches. Why would you save a person's bones like that? What's, what's the point of that? Anybody know? Resurrection. Yeah. 
Yeah, they believe in the resurrection. And so there's their saving the bones, uh, you know, and so that, that person's ready to go. Uh, so don't, anybody ever tells you that uh, there was no real understanding of resurrection and all of that in the Old Testament, just, just move on and say, uh-huh, thank you, have a nice day, and just, <laughs> just, just, just ignore them because it's terribly wrong. It's foolish. It's statements that are made clearly that way. And, all, and you look at Jewish history, and you look at the way they, they buried and everything else, you bet they believed in the resurrection. Um, so anyway, they, would, they were putting him, preparing him like that, putting him in that, in that, in that tomb. And, um, and he did not stay there. By the way, the next verse uh, is, 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 is John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was dark and saw the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. Okay, so what I'm looking at is that time period between Friday afternoon before three stars appeared in the sky. So before the Sabbath began, Jesus was prepared like that, put on that stone shelf. The stone is rolled against it. And then for uh, the, from Friday, what we would call Friday evening uh, through Saturday and then into Sunday morning, uh, somewhere very early Sunday morning, uh, the Lord was resurrected. And, and the, one of the, the Gospels here, John will describe it because he found it this way. He came running after Mary Magdalene told him the body was gone. What they found was the wrappings that I mentioned with all that stuff, still intact, but nothing in it. Did you follow what I just said? Yeah, that's the interest. That's why, and it says, and, 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 and John says, and I believed. <laughs> now, there was, here you come, and here is this, like these, this mummy, as it were, with no body in it. The, the rags, I mean, the, the wrappings and all of that, empty. I mean, how do you do that? You can't do that. You can't steal a body that way. That isn't a stolen body. You might have unwrapped it for some reason. I don't know why anyone, if you stole it, you'd have just taken the whole thing and carted it off. Um, or if you really were something wrong with you, you would have unwrapped the whole thing and taken the body, and you'd have a pile of rags somewhere. But you can't have the rags, everything still wrapped, but nothing in it. Ah, now that, that's, that's what they saw. And then it says, and the face cloth... Uh, folded carefully, Lord's tidy, and, and set it aside. So, you know, can you imagine him resurrected and he takes this thing off and folds it, puts it down? <laughs> he is in charge, man. Yeah. Hallelujah. So, the question I want to address today, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not given to uh, curiosity. I don't like pursuing topics out of curiosity. But, I, but this has a there is something the Bible says about it. And that's what I'm going to show you. Where was he during that, from Friday evening till Sunday morning? Where was he? And you'll have people preach sermons on this, and you'll have, you, have, uh, you have theories about this, and things are said about this, and I want us to look at what the Word says. So come, Holy Spirit, open the Word to us. Amen. I'll start, let's look at our discussion guide. God's hidden wisdom. Before God created the universe, before he breathed life into a human being, 
Before the first man or woman rebelled against him, bringing death upon themselves and their descendants, there was already hidden in God's heart a plan to save us. Did you hear what I just said? Before he even spoke the first thing of creation, I suppose before he created the spiritual world, uh, outside of himself, before any of this happened, the Lord had a plan in his heart to save us. He knew what we would do before we did it, and he knew what he must do in order to rescue us. But he didn't tell anyone exactly how he would accomplish his plans, not the angels, nor even the prophets to whom he dictated great portions of that plan. Listen to Peter. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. I mean, stop at that point. Isn't that a, he has just told us that as the prophets were writing the things they were writing, they were curious. They were, they were wondering, what is, who is this? And when will this happen? So picture, picture David. You know, he's talking about, you know, they, they, they look at me and they see my bones and they, you know, they, uh, they give me vinegar and they, you know, they, they pierce me and all of this kind of thing. David's writing this 1,000 a a thousand B.C. And he's saying, why am I saying this? Who is this? David was a prophet. He, he, was, he was a king. He was a psalmist, but he was a prophet. Isaiah, he's writing. He is writing so clearly there is not in the New Testament, in my judgment, a, a clearer statement of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ than Isaiah 53. I mean, you just, and, and he's, he starts at chapter 49, talks about pulling out the beard, talks about spitting, talks about every, just goes on and on, just describes the Lord in, in detail. This, this is, it's like you're looking at a picture. You're looking at a picture of him and explains it. And even Isaiah did not know. He, he, he knew he was talking about the Messiah. You can see that. But he thinks, who, what? How is this work? And, and the father would say, this is not for you to know. You're writing for someone in the future. You're writing for the future. Uh, Daniel, you know that Daniel says the Messiah will die? He says he will be cut off. Daniel chapter 9. It's as clear as that. When it says cut off, it means cut off out of the land of the living. That's what he's talking about. He says, and he uses the word Messiah, he, the Messiah will die. How do you get around that? He even dates it, and he was right. Uh, but he says, what is this that I'm looking at? Zechariah, when he says, they'll look on me whom they pierced, he would be saying, how would we pierce you? How would we pierce you? But he wrote it. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Notice that angels don't understand either everything they're seeing. It says they, they long to bend down and look in. They, they long to see what is this. For God's plan of salvation to work, it had to remain a secret. Because he must trick the enemy who desired to destroy humans into doing the very thing that would result in their salvation. Listen to Paul. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, 
nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom. Say the hidden wisdom. Which God predestined, look at this, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. See, I, I didn't make that up, what I told you. It's right out of there. Before the ages, before he created the ages, before anything existed, he predestined this. He predestined that we would be his sons and daughters. Isn't that beautiful? The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age, see that phrase, rulers of this age? That is a phrase and it means the, the spiritual hierarchy, Satan and his, his demonic hierarchy. Um, the rabbis of that time believed this. This is not something that was this is being imposed on things. It talks about principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places in Ephesians 6. Uh, Paul's going down the whole hierarchy, as it were, of, 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 of Satan and his demonic uh, forces. And, and there's an organization to it. And so he says all of that. The rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I, uh, when I started on this, I, I, I saw that and I think, I, I, I thought it meant what I'm telling you it means. And that is that, uh, that, that Satan himself, and certainly the people he inspired, didn't, didn't know what they were doing. Um, but I got worried and I thought, am I? And, and some of the uh, people I would read, thought, you know, they just said, no, nah, that just means Pilate and Herod and everybody. And I thought, really, that, that phrase means a lot more than that. And so um, I, was, I was sitting there with Mary, and I'm thinking, I better maybe back away from this whole thing. I, you know, and she said, well, have you, have you looked at, uh, and I had uh, um, uh, in the New Spirit-Filled Life Bible, Jack Hayford edited that. She said, have you seen what that says? And I thought, no. All right. So I pulled it down, and, and here's what it said. Um, this is under 1 Corinthians 2.8. It said, this passage asserts that Satan, the god of this age, and the demons of hell, principalities and powers, Colossians 2.15, were completely confounded by the cross. This is a profound disclosure of Satan's limited ability to anticipate the tactics of Almighty God. The reminder of that, that God's sovereign power and omniscience are always the insurance of the believer's ultimate victory in Christ. God's smarter than the devil. And he literally deceived him. I don't like to use a negative word like deceived for the Lord, but I, so that's why I use the word trick. But he tricked him. He, 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 fooled, he fooled him. Blessed be the Lord. Hallelujah. Have you ever wondered why the devil so viciously and gleefully attacked Jesus if by that very act of killing him, he was making salvation possible for all humans? You would think that the devil was smarter than that, Surely. If he had understood the power of the cross, neither he nor the people under his control would have done anything to further that plan. Yet he, he did to Jesus exactly what the prophet said he would do, and by doing so, ensured that Jesus became our Savior. He did all of that because God's wisdom was hidden from him. I read these again recently, the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Mary and I read. I, I read to her, and she, she'll knit or, or whatever, and, and um, we do our prayer time and stuff. And um, in here, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, have you read this? 
If you've not read the Chronicles, I, I highly recommend it. Um, in this, Aslan uh, is this lion, and he represents Jesus. And there's a white witch, and, and she represents Satan. And you, you have this, uh, this situation where one of these human, uh, these, these young humans has betrayed uh, uh, his uh, family and uh, is, has given himself into the control of this, this white witch and, and, uh, and has then uh, come out of it, but now is, is, is in trouble. And, and the witch knows this, and she will say that she, that she has a right to a kill. Because of his sin, she has a right to kill him. And that's what the devil would say of us. Do you understand that? That if, the, if, if we are not forgiven, the devil has a right to justice. And the justice is the wages of sin is, and he has a right to impose those. So if we do not have an advocate, if we do not have the righteousness of Christ given to us, we will be given into the hand of justice. And that's, that's the, the terrible thing of this. And... Um, but there's, a, there's, a, there's what is, a, in effect, a crucifixion scene where what Aslan is taken uh, to this, and, and he speaks to the white witch, and then she lets Edmund, who's this young fellow, lets him go, strangely. And then, then Aslan goes and, and waits, and uh, in the middle of the evening, goes up when no one's watching, a couple of the children follow him. And this happens. Um, he presents himself to the white witch there at the place with the stone table. That's how Lewis portrays it, this great stone table. It says, when once Aslan had been tied, and tied so that he was really a mass of cords, on this flat stone, a hush fell on the crowd. There were all these demonic monsters. Uh, the witch and her, and her demonic horde have tied him up now. Uh, Four hags, that would be witches of some sort, holding four torches, stood at the corners of the table. The witch bared her arms as she had bared them in the previous night when it had been Edmund instead of Aslan. She was going to kill him. Then she be began to wet the knife. It looked to the children when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it as if the knife were made of stone, not of steel, and it was of a strange and evil shape. At last she drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion. But his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now who has won? Fool! Did you think by all of this that you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life. And you have not saved his in that knowledge, despair and die. I think the devil thought he finished the Lord. Then there is a resurrection. And uh, he, is, uh, he appears and he, he shows up and in the camp, and they all go, uh, some, one of the, the girls says, you're not a ghost, are you? And he, he says, do I look it? And then uh, she says, oh, you're real, and they, they, they hug him. And, and then one of the girls asks, what does this all mean? Uh, it means, says Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, 
the plan of, the, of the, 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 the ways of God. There is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time, began, was, before time dawned, just what I said before God spoke the worlds into existence, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Uh, you begin to reverse the curse. Hallelujah. I think that happened in effect in however it worked. I think the Lord actually deceived the devil into doing the very thing that would save us. God hid some of his plan from everyone until Jesus' work on the cross was finished, but he revealed many of the basic principles of his plan from Adam and Eve onward. No sooner had our first parents sinned than God promised them that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. An animal sacrifice to atone for sin was begun by their children. See, here's the thing that confuses me. I know the plan is hidden. Some of it is hidden. And yet, if you go into the Bible, you can go clear back to, 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 to Genesis thir- chapter 3, and you begin to have the truth of what he's going to do. The, the seed of the woman will bruise or crush the serpent's head. I mean, that's prophetic, man. You, who, we could put that together. And then you, you have, you have uh, no sooner than that than, than Adam and Eve's children begin to offer animal sacrifice. And what they, what they would do, you see it with Cain, or Cain killed Abel, Abel would did it. Uh, and then Seth, their, their next young child, uh, began to uh, call upon the name of the Lord, which meant he would pile up these um, stones, he would take an animal, he would lay his hands on its head, confess his sins over that animal, and cut its throat, and then burn the animal. What is that symbolizing? A transfer of sin. Yeah, from the very beginning, this whole idea of transferring to some sacrifice. But nobody in their right mind thinks the death of a goat or the death of a a sheep will somehow atone human sin. It's symbolized. It's a symbol, not, not, it's telling us there will be a sheep. There will be a lamb. There will be an offering. Uh, and And I'll get to it. God actually, that is said specifically what I'm saying. So it's taught from the very beginning. So I'm thinking to myself, how can you teach these things and look at the symbols and look at the prophetic words all through the Bible and then say it's hidden? Because, and it was to some, all right? Abraham entered into a profound covenant with God in which God symbolically swore to him, so be it to me if you or your seed should break my covenant. Say that, would you out loud? So be it to me if you or your seed should break my covenant. Do you remember this? He's promised Abraham all of this. Abraham says, how will I know this is true? And then God says, go cut these animals in half. And he has a, what does he have, an ox? Uh, or, a, or, or no, a, 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 some kind of cattle. He has a, a goat, a ram. He has a turtle dove and a, and a pigeon. And they split these things. And then you remember, I've described this for you, the blood and the whole thing. And you walked through the blood. And, and you said as you went through these horrible parts, so be it to me if I should break my covenant. Only God went through it alone. Abraham watched. And so God is saying, so be it to me if you should break my covenant. Imagine that. 
Clear back with Abraham, he's beginning to talk about taking it upon himself. Abraham nearly sacrificed his own son of promise at the very place where God would sacrifice his son 2,000 years later. The picture I showed you last week of of the place of the skull, that's the top point of Mount Moriah. That is where Abraham took uh, Isaac 50 miles from Beersheba, took him all the way up, brings him to that place, piles the stones, captures his son, sticks him on that thing, and almost killed him right there. Imagine that. His only son of promise. He almost killed him there. God stayed his hand and said, uh, don't do it. And then he looked and saw a ram in the thicket. And then it says this. Abraham named that place Jehovah-Jireh. What does that mean? For the Lord will provide. And, it, and what he means is the Lord will provide himself an offering in this place. And I showed you it was within a dozen yards of where Jesus was crucified. Isn't that something? Isn't that amazing? I mean, talk to me. When you, when you, when you, when you see this, you say, how is this hidden? I mean, here, in the place where Abraham almost sacrificed his son, his only son of promise, God would sacrifice his son. I mean, <laughs> man, that's a symbol. Um, the essential truths of God's plan continue to be taught over the centuries by such things as the covenant ceremony, which God made with the nation of Israel, the sacrificial system of the tabernacle and the temple, the prophets' repeatedly, repeated call to repent and trust in the forgiving mercy of God. Uh, listen, would you read this out loud with me? Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Listen to that invitation for repentance and for forgiveness. Uh, How about, let's read this one. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Does God enjoy having people uh, uh, perish? He hates it. He hates it. This is never his will. He says, I, my, I, I, I long for the wicked to repent and live. So the basic principles necessary to salvation have always been available. Yet God explained those principles using words and symbols which would make sense only to a certain kind of person. To understand their meaning, a person must first recognize their own sin and acknowledge that they need God's mercy. Someone who is self-righteous would not understand because they would feel no need for such a sacrifice to be made on their behalf. Until there's a sense of conviction over us, until we're aware of our sin, it's, it's just like, why would God do that? Uh, it's, it's, uh, I've heard people use the term slaughterhouse religion. Uh, I, years ago, I, I was uh, at, a, at, a, at another church and I... I was, it was a, a Presbyterian church. It was a good church, a really good one. And uh, I got to preach on occasion. And when you get to preach in that, you get to choose the hymns. And uh, so that weekend, I had chosen the hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And our choir director, she said, Oh, all that blood. And uh, 
I thought, you don't understand, do you? So I, 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 I actually, as time went on, that, that woman uh, became profoundly committed to Jesus Christ, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and one of the most on-fire ladies you'll, you'll meet. Uh, and then she loved songs like that. <laughs> but until you understand you're a sinner, until you understand that should have been me, you see? Why was it so gory? What was the covenant? What, what did God swear himself to as he passed through those, that torn body of, the, of those animals? So be it to me. See, the, that, the, 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 the violence of the cross was the fulfillment is because he became a curse for us. He, the, the atonement for us is his death. But he bore the curse as well. And the, so, so be it to me, it happened to him. He was savaged just as the curse demanded. And he bore that for us so that we do not have the curse on us. Hallelujah. Someone who is self-righteous would not understand because he would feel no, uh, they would feel no need for a, such a sacrifice to be made on their behalf. Someone who is full of mental pride would find it foolish because it would not fit the image of God they'd created for themselves or the absence of that. They would say this whole thing is ridiculous. And someone who is rebellious would refuse to see it because such mercy would demand that they repent and surrender to the one who had been so kind to them. That's, uh, that's uh, John 3, what, about 19 and 20. That's why God didn't need to hide his plan in a place where no one could see it. All he needed to do was present it in such a way that only the humble would understand it. Does this make sense now? He hid it that way. Which rules out the devil and his angels. Ungodly leaders like Herod, Annas, and Caiaphas. As well as anyone else who's unwilling to acknowledge the depth of their own sin or the greatness of God's mercy. Paul will talk about it as a veil before the face. He said, the veil cannot see the glory of God. Why? It's veiled with their self-righteousness. This is the danger, people. When you get drawn into some of these things in which you begin to become, I mean, become oh so, oh so uh, Torah observant and oh so religious and oh so whatever it is. It's fine if you're worshiping with it. But I'll tell you, the human heart tends to draw into a self-righteousness and, and a fear that if I don't do these things, bad things are going to happen. The minute you cross that line, you cannot have both. You either trust the free gift of God's righteousness or you earn your own. There is no straddling that fence. You follow me? I don't say that. Paul says that. He says it absolutely clearly. You will choose one or the other. You will be righteous by faith in Christ or you'll be righteous by your own. You will not have both. You cannot hold on to both at the same time. Now that we know who Jesus is and what he did, we are able to look back and see clues all through the Bible. We, rec- we realize that God ha- hid his plan in plain sight where everyone could see it. But because it came out of his own heart, because it expressed his character, which is both just and merciful, and I think because it required such a terrible sacrifice from him personally, the devil simply couldn't believe he would do it. And proud humans can't believe their sin is so bad they would need it. To these it was, was and still is an un- incomprehensible mystery from many God's wisdom is still hidden. Basic principles. 
What are the basic principles of God's plan of salvation? What truths did he hide in plain sight using words and symbols only the humble could understand? Here are four. Number one, sin always brings death. Would you say that? Both physical and spiritual. Say that part too. Both physical and spiritual. Look, this is an important understanding. Sin always brings death, even when you do it, even when I do it. You'll have people say, oh, you don't need to worry about that. You know, everything's forgiven. And so you're under grace. So actually, you can sin on all you want. So so let let me reinterpret that statement. Sin always brings death. So go ahead and create death. Go ahead and damage your marriage. Go ahead and damage your, 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 your life, your ministry, uh, your future, your career. Go ahead and hurt people and injure people and say cruel things and do cruel things. Go ahead because you're forgiven. Hallelujah. What a gospel. Something wrong with that, isn't there? It's naivete. It's naivete. It's just... It's, it, 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 The good news isn't just that we're forgiven. The good news is we have now been set free to stop sinning, to stop hurting people, to stop ruining our ministries, to stop ruining our careers, to stop damaging people left and right and saying vile things that we have to... We've been set free. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit, so we have the power to do it. Our spirit is set free. A new heart has been put in us. Stone's taken out and flesh is put in. And I now can obey God. Hallelujah. Yes, if I stumble, I'm forgiven. I have constant grace. But do not, do not long for a grace that lets you sin on bravely. That lets you keep creating death. Sin still, always, always will bring death. In every capacity. We want to stop it. Not, not just get forgiven for it. Let's read this uh, statement. Uh, Genesis 1. The Lord commanded the man saying. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Did Adam die? He didn't die physically immediately. Uh, but he, he and she uh, were then cut off uh, in their relationship from the Lord. I think what happened to them is they became spiritually separated from him. Remember the strange statement, they knew they were naked? You think like, what's, what's the matter with you? Could you see that? I don't think they could see that. I actually think that the, 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 the brilliant glory of God was on them. I think they shone like, with light all over them. And when they sinned, the light was gone. They are now just two naked folk. And so suddenly there was a, there was a whole different capacity. That's what Adam and Eve did to us. We, don't, we, don't, we aren't punished for their sin. But we, come, we all come into this world now separated because we lost that. So we're all on our own, our own human resources, our own human understanding, our own our human thoughts. How well do you do in your own human understanding? Yeah, me too. We deeply need God. And so now, through, the, through Jesus Christ, that spiritual barrier is removed. And so now I'm back with him. He will talk to me, and I can find his wisdom, find his guidance, find his help, so I don't have to run around on my, on my own. But any human on their own will make, will make trouble. I remember before I was a believer, I was, before I was 12 years old, believe it or not, by 12 years old, I was getting in a lot of trouble. 
I mean, I had already talked with the police on a couple of occasions. <laughs> I had, I had, I'd, uh, never mind. Uh, I, I, I was headed for, I was, and I was, I look back and I realized, I, I did things that even to this day make my palms sweat. And I think, I, w- I was so stupid. It was like unbelievably stupid. It's like, what were you thinking? You idiot, you know? I w- it seemed right to me, you know? Made sense to me. It's funny how we are without the Holy Spirit counseling us. Now I look back, now, now with him, oh boy, I w- he, he'll convict me, he'll correct me. I am so grateful for that, aren't you? Yeah, well, I'm not on my own anymore. Adam and Eve, this, 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 law, this sin, uh, let's read the next one, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It always is. That's the price of sin. The penalty of sin must be paid. Let's say that. It cannot be ignored. I think there are people who think God could just sort of forget it. If he, if he just lighten up a bit, uh, he could just go, oh, no problem here. I mean, you know, yeah, all this stuff happened. But I'm going to just forget it and move on. Can we put it in the past and move on, please? That isn't the way it works. Justice demands a kill. Justice demands payment. The devil demands payment. He, the Lord does not, cannot, just forget it. When there is sin, it must be paid for. It must be dealt with. It is never just ignored. Guilt is transferable. Would you say that? The, the penalty can be paid by another. That is, the, that is the lesson of animal sacrifice, and it is the truth that makes God's mercy possible. What would they do with animal sacrifice? They'd put their hands on the head of that thing and transfer the sin. Look at, look at this statement. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. What's the name of that goat? That's the scapegoat. And this is, is this the day, this is the time of atonement. And what you do is you, you would go through and you would cleanse the entire tabernacle or, or the temple. Uh, there was a whole ceremony, and you work your way from the front right to the back, to the, to the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and uh, where the, the sin is placed there on the mercy seat, that gold plate on top of the covenant. And then you'd work your way the other direction. And all of, but it's almost as if all the sins of Israel had accumulated over the year. You had just this entire accumulation. And then the high priest would atone for himself, of course, and then that, 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 that the... The, the sin, as it were, was taken. And on this time of atonement, the, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of this goat and would confess the sins of Israel. It's like if the whole thing was just put on this animal. And that goat would then be taken out into the wilderness, far away. You do not want this animal coming back. Far away um, and, and, and left there to die. Um, the, the goat would bear away from Israel its sins. Is that a vivid symbol or what? Uh, who is the scapegoat? Jesus Christ has now taken and born. Guilt is 
transferable. That's why we can be forgiven. My sin and yours can be transferred, and it can be paid for by another. Let's read this from Isaiah. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. There it is. There is Isaiah teaching us right out of this thing about the suffering Messiah. The Lord hath laid on him, just like, like the scapegoat, just like the, like the lamb. Number three, sin gives death the power to hold someone in its grip. Would you say that? Sin gives death the power to hold someone in its grip. Death cannot hold a sinless person. Say that. Death cannot hold a sinless person. Uh, I'll read this. This is Peter's statement on, on, on the day of Pentecost, speaking of Jesus. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, my flesh will also live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades is not hell. Hell doesn't exist yet, people. Hades is the grave. It is, uh, speaks of Sheol in the Hebrew. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The key word there, Holy One. The one who is perfectly holy, death cannot hold it. He will not decay. He will escape death. And then he will, <laughs> uh, they'll go on to say, David died, who said that. Clearly it wasn't him. But we have one now who has not died. Death could not hold him. The grave released him. He did not decay. He is the Holy One. He is our Savior. When we repent, of our, repent our sin, uh, pardon me, when we repent, our spirit stops choosing to sin. When we place our faith in God's mercy, we receive forgiveness for our sins. And, and David says this. Why don't you read Psalm 32 with me? When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. A thousand years before the Lord Jesus. David understands, I confess my sin, and I will receive mercy from my God. Announced to angels, have you ever wondered where Jesus went during those days when his body lay in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb? The Bible doesn't give us many details, but thankfully it does tell us something very important. Both Peter and Paul tell us that Jesus announced his victory to the evil spirits. Listen to Peter. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, hang on. Here it is. In which, he all, which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient. Peter, Peter pictures, he says, is what happened, he said, is, is when, he was, when he, he was, his body died, but his spirit was alive, and he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And the particular group he focuses on there, and it'll be, there, there's more than this, it's Satan and, and his horde. 
But he talks about the spirits that were in prison uh, during the time of Noah. Do you remember this? Do you wonder what that is? Uh, it, I'll tell you what it is. It, it's a bit odd, and I won't go into it in detail. Um, but there, there, there really was an understanding in the Bible. Genesis 6, you have a strange situation. You have a sit- situation which it says, The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. And apparently, we, I, I have no idea, and I'm not going to get anywhere further. The, demon, there was the fallen angels, in some way, had sexual uh, involvement with humans. That was a line that was crossed. And God said, no more. And he actually took that group and cast them. Peter will use the word Tartarus, uh, which was a term that the rabbis used for the place of the, of the fallen spirits. And he cast those spirits into that uh, to that place, they're actually in holy. So that's the one Peter refers to. By the way, how would Peter know any of this? Come on, it's Peter. You know what he did when, he, when, when, when Jesus appeared and when they had breakfast on the, on the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, somebody's going to go, so where were you? <laughs> well, what would you see? I mean, come on. And Peter is not a shy one. He, I can't imagine he didn't ask. I imagine they all would ask him. Um, <laughs> I think the Lord said, this is where I went. This is where I went. I went and made proclamation to the devil and his horde, and I announced my victory that they had done to me the very thing that redeemed the human race, and they had put all things under my feet. Hallelujah. Then he added, Peter added, who, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers. See those terms? Those all talk about demo, demonic uh, powers. Angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Paul also speaks uh, of Jesus' victory over Satan and his forces. Listen, when he, the Father, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, again, there's a phrase, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Um, The father declared his son's triumph. So Jesus did not go to hell and suffer for us there. Let Let me emphasize that. You may have heard that teaching. It is not true. There is no biblical basis. I've given you right here all of the things the Bible says about it. Uh, You can take Ephesians 4 if you want. Uh, Also, you know, he took captivity captive and ascended, uh, that kind of thing. But that fits right in with what we've described here. Um, That's it. He, so that, uh, let me me emphasize this. The wages of sin is what? Not torture. The wages of sin is not torture. God does not torture. He warns us of separation. That we will be apart from him in the fires of God. Forever. And it's a horrible thing. It's absolute torment. But God is not a torturer. The wages of sin is death. And the Lord died for us. In fact, here's how the Bible pictures it. We die with him. If you look in Colossians, it uses these three beautiful participles. Paul will say, buried together with him, raised together with him, made alive together with him. All of those are just one word, each one of those phrases. Say it with me. Buried together with him. Raised together with him. Made alive together with him. 
See, here's the truth. When you, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you give your heart to him, you literally become joined to him like a, like a husband and wife. You become one flesh, as it were, with him. He's not just out there who did this for you. You don't observe him from a distance and go, nice job, thank you. He now becomes your, your, your husband. He become, you become one with him. So that he didn't just die for me. By faith, I died with him. You follow? You died, your death, spiritually, in terms of God's economy, the devil's economy, the requirements of the law, you have already died. When you put your faith, when you repented, put your faith in Jesus Christ and said, you, I, Lord, you died for me, you died, I, died, I join you in this. That is your spiritual death. Spiritually, it's done. And so I have died with Christ. What more, can the, what more can the law do to me than kill me? What more can the devil do to me? I'm dead. There's no right to me at all. But not only am I, did I buried together with Christ, what's the next one? Raised together with Christ. See, his righteousness, his purity, his holiness, couldn't, the death could not hold it. But I'm joined to him. I'm in him, as it were. When he came out of the grave, I came out of the grave. So death has already lost its hold on me. My body is still unfinished in the process. Paul teaches this. The resurrection will complete it. But my spirit and who I am is completely in Christ and free of this. So for me, what is death? The body falls off, kerplunk, and there I stand, still me. You stand, still you. Do you want to follow me? This is what death will be. The body goes off. You'll still be as you. You'll be conscious you, remembering you. You, you don't, don't change. Jesus Christ has defeated death. And he has taken us out with it. And then made alive together with him. We are now uh, filled with the spirit. And given the grace of God with Jesus Christ. So Jesus did not go to hell and suffer for us there. He did not need to do that. Uh, There is none of that. He went wherever the devil and his fallen angels are. And announced to them God's hidden wisdom. He proclaimed the power of his cross. He revealed that they had not defeated him, but that he had defeated them. And they must now completely submit to him and to all who call upon his name. After revealing Jesus' amazing humility in leaving heaven to become a man, and then as a man choosing to die for us on a cross, Paul says this, For this reason also God highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this this is what Jesus announced to angels before his resurrection. This is what he explained to his disciples Before his ascension. This is the good news that has been proclaimed to you and me. And this is the message that Jesus has called us to proclaim to the world until he returns. Would you stand with me? What did he say in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. When you and I deal 
with the things that are attacking people, the oppression, the, the, the demonic things, the, the, the mental things, the assaults that are on people. We come in Christ, joined to him. His authority is our authority. You and I need to begin to think that way. And when you deal with things, we need to do a lot less begging, a lot less whining. Our prayers, when we whine them, those whiny things, oh, God, it's so bad. Make it stop. Does it work? It doesn't work for me, I can tell you that. There's no power in that. You get nowhere. You just sort of, maybe you feel better after you've whined a while. I don't know. Have a good cry. But there's nothing that will move with that. Jesus announced to the devil, and the devil knows it to be true, I have conquered you. And I have destroyed your power over people. See, that's what he conquered. The devil no longer has a right to you. You, know, you don't belong to him anymore. Only insofar as he can get us to believe his lies and his garbage does he have an influence in our lives. We belong to Christ. And you and I need to use that authority. I, 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 went, I was in some ministry situation the other day, and I, I just thought to myself, less, less asking, more telling. I mean, there's more, more declaring, more announcing, more speaking the word of the Lord and the authority of the Lord in the situation. Less of this just, oh, God, help kind of prayers. More, more announcing it. I, I'll close with this, but I just, I'm thinking I, was a, I think I was a brand-new Christian, about 12 years of age, um, and my mother used to get um, these terrible migraines. I mean, not, not a little headache. She would be savagely sick. And this was one of the worst she'd ever had. And she was just in agony. And she says, Stephen, come and pray for me. Well, I don't know what to pray. I hadn't been taught anything. No, I didn't go to church. I, I mean, we didn't go. I, I just knew nothing. But I walked in there, and I saw her in this condition. And I don't know why, even as, as this child, I said this. But I said, Satan, in the name of my God and your God, get out of her. She went flat on the bed and was healed instantly. You and I have been given authority. Christ has conquered the devil with his, he brings, he brings disease, he brings depression, he brings suicide, he brings, he brings uh, the, the things, that, the confusion, the temptations. You and I have been, he conquered these things and we need to stand in that because you are joined to Christ. You are, you are with him. You are, when, when, when you speak in his name and in his, in, in his, his authority, the enemy has to, has to bow its knee. We need to use this. It isn't silly. We're not talking about just railing at things. This is the authority he's clothed us with. So if you're, if you're game to do this, would you, just, would you mind putting your hands up? What I'm going to pray is that the Lord will clothe us with authority. And that we'll accept that authority that he has given us. That we, and the reason I'm thinking of clothing is just as though he would put over your head and mine right now. And over our arms that he would clothe us with that robe, his robe of righteousness his robe of authority. So, Lord, we just receive right now. We hear the word. We hear what our, our, our apostle Peter and Paul have taught us, that you have announced to hell your victory. You have triumphed over them. 
rulers and authorities, that at your name every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that you are, you are the Lord Jesus. You are the risen one. You are the king to the glory of God the Father. We ask you to clothe us with that authority. That as we, as your bride, your beloved, we who died with you and you have risen with you, dear one, that we will be made alive together with you now. Full of the Holy Spirit and full of your authority, as you guide us, we will speak. We ask you to teach us, everyone, Lord, where we have grown fearful, where we have, where we have allowed these things and, and, uh, to terrify us. Forgive us. And we look now at who you are and what you've done. You have triumphed over hell. You have broken its right to us. And you have given us the truth to proclaim. Come, Lord. Clothe us with this, this authority that we might minister your wonderful life to people and to our own families in Jesus' powerful name. If you receive that authority, would you say, yes, Lord? Yes. I'm clothed with your authority. I'm clothed with your righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray it. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.